At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to another episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker of the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal. This week, my guest is Lawrence H. Summers, former Secretary of the Treasury, former Chief Economic Advisor to President Obama, former President of Harvard University, now a professor at Harvard, and of course, one of the most eminent economists in the world, and a particularly outspoken one. Larry Summers, thanks for joining me. Good to be with you, Jerry. Larry, let me start with the obvious question. A year ago, you were one of the most vocal people warning about the risk of inflation to the US. A lot of people dismissed those risks, not least the Federal Reserve, suggesting that the inflation threat was going to be transitory. A year later, I think it's fair to say that you've been right and they've been wrong. Are you, uh, are you taking a victory lap? Look, I wish we didn't have the inflation. I wish we didn't have the challenges that we have now. So I would have preferred to have been wrong. And I think in fairness to the Federal Reserve and the administration, it needs to be said that their views were widely tracking the views of probably a substantial majority of economists on Wall Street and in academia. At the time, I thought those views were misguided because it seemed to me that the level of stimulus that was being provided was entirely disproportionate to plausible estimates of the gap that had to be filled. But mine was at that point very much a minority viewpoint. So the data that we have now that have been coming in extremely strong, we have the highest consumer price index increase, uh, annual rate increase since 1982, highest rate in 40 years, well over 7%. We have also producer prices rising at 9%, 9% plus. If you, even if you take out the volatile food and energy numbers from those, you still have very, very high levels of inflation, higher than anything we've seen in decades. Now, there's still a view, I think, and I think it's fair to say, well, I want to come on and we're going to talk about Fed policy and other policies too, but there's still a view at um, the Fed, and indeed, I think, probably fair to say most market economists, most Wall Street economists anyway, that, that this, these rates are going to come down significantly, that we're not facing a serious risk of a of spiraling inflation as we saw in the 1970s. You know, the expectation, I think market consensus is that consumer price inflation will be down to around 3% by the end of the year. Uh, some people are even more optimistic than that. What's your view? Um, again, the, you know, the, we, we know the, the factors behind that. People think these supply chain issues will continue to unravel. More people will come back into work, taking some of the pressure off the labor market. Uh, and that's, and of course, the Fed is going to raise interest rates. They, maybe people think that all of that combined is going to reduce inflation. What's your sense of, of the trajectory of the inflation rate over the next six to nine months? I think it's pretty unlikely that we're going to have the kind of strong economy that people foresee with unemployment falling well below four and that we're going to see inflation get within spitting distance of the Fed's 2% target. It's true, as people point out, that there are a variety of transient factors. The What's happened to used car prices are probably the strongest example, but there are other particular bottleneck factors as well. And those 
will lead to some decline in the inflation rate. What I think people don't emphasize is factors that point towards acceleration in inflation, even from current levels. And the two most prominent examples there are the two largest markets in the economy, the labor market and the housing market, both of which where I've done recent studies. In the labor market, by the best available indicators, I think of that as being the employment cost index focused on the private sector and taking out the very volatile bonus pay component. That's now running at 5.7% and accelerated by about 1% from the third quarter to the fourth quarter. If one looks at the Atlanta Fed data, it is also running in the 5 to 6% range, depending on just how one looks at it. We have labor markets that would normally have corresponded to a 2% unemployment rate in terms of how tight they are and how much trouble employers are having in finding workers. So I look at 5% wage inflation, epically tight labor markets, accelerating wage inflation, and I see wage inflation rising to the 6 to 7 range. And I don't see how that fits with uh, anything like 2% inflation, no matter what's happening in particular volatile sectors. I think the other point, Jerry, is the housing market, where there's a lot of historical experience. This has now been studied by the Dallas and the San Francisco Federal Reserve Banks, and I've done my own research that shows that the CPI and the personal consumption expenditures deflator, the index preferred by the Fed, have procedures for dealing with lags with housing that build in very substantial lags relative to what's in the private sector data. And if you take proper account of those lags, I think the right guess is that housing inflation this year is going to be in close to the 7% range. To put that in perspective, what that means is that even if every other component was literally zero, the core CPI would be up 2.5% this year. So I think you got to balance the decelerating components against the accelerating components. And I think on balance, I certainly would bet that inflation would come down from the 7% level. But to say that it will come down is not to say that we don't have a meaningful inflation problem. Uh, just quickly on the labor market, because I know you've just published a paper on conditions in the labor market. We get some conflicting signals on labor market tightness right now. The official unemployment rate is 4%, uh, which is tight, but not that tight in terms of where we were before the pandemic. Um, at the same time, we have an employment labor force participation rate, which is still below where it was before the pandemic, suggesting some slack. But there are other indicators, and I think this is what you particularly looked into, that suggest actually the labor market is much tighter than that. I think even uh, you, you think it's sort of the current conditions are roughly equivalent to like a 2% unemployment rate. Can you just elaborate on that? And again, tell us what that means in terms of wage pressures, what we can expect from that level of tightness. Look, it's employers who set wages. They set wages worried about two things. They set wages worried about retaining their existing workers, and they set wages worried about attracting new workers to fill vacancies. What we know is that quit turnover is higher than it's ever been and that the ratio of vacancies to available workers is higher than it's ever been by a wide margin. That tells you that employers are feeling more and more wage pressure. 
And if you're in any doubt, just talk to employers and they all say the same thing, which is that they're going to have to raise wages in order to retain and attract uh, workers. What many of them say is, you know, we gave people bonuses for coming for interviews. We gave people hiring bonuses, but it's all not enough. We're just going to have to start raising wages on an ongoing basis. And while we wish we didn't have to, it's okay because we're going to be able to pass it on in the form of higher prices. And the statistical evidence is that what has predictive power for wage inflation is not labor force participation. What has predictive power for uh, labor force participation is dominantly these measures like vacancies and quits. And I know many people hold out the hope that we're going to have a big increase in labor force participation, and that's somehow going to soften wage pressures. Look, anything is possible, but if you look at the number of people who've retired, if you look at the number of people who are rethinking their uh, lives, if you look at the piggy bank people have gotten from their houses, I don't think it's a good bet that labor force participation is going to go up a lot. And even if it does, every new worker is also going to be a new spender, which is going to put more pressure for hiring. You know, the period in the United States when we had the most rapidly growing labor force participation was when all the women were surging into the economy, into the labor force in the 1970s. That was not much of an anti-inflation strategy at all. So I'm very skeptical of the idea that this problem is going to solve itself. What about unions, uh, Larry? Some people point out that a big difference between now and the 1970s is we have much weaker labor unions and the 70s, much higher proportion of the workforce was unionized. There were strong unions. They were able to push for big wage increases, you know, as, as prices rose. And so we got that wage price spiral. There is a view now that with a much smaller proportion of the labor force unionized and unions generally much weaker, that actually employers will be able to keep the lid on wage rises much more effectively than they did and therefore avoid a wage price spiral. What do you make of that? Well, first of all, Jerry, um, what may be more relevant is the nearer term comparison. And we're certainly seeing a resurgence of labor power in the last couple of two or three years. And certainly that's what the Biden administration is trying uh, very hard to encourage. Second of all, in the 1970s, people thought the normal rate of unemployment was five and a half or six. Now we're looking at unemployment that's below four. So it may be that we can sustain higher levels of employment without inflation because of the kinds of structural changes you refer to. But a ton of that is built into all of uh, the existing framework. Third, we are already starting to see wage price spiral stuff. You know, the um, contract at Caterpillar had taken the colas out years ago, and the colas have now been uh, put back in, colas, cost of living uh, allowances. Even the federal workforce, the federal workforce has now locked in for 2023 in the president's budget proposal 4.6% inflation. If the federal government itself 
which is kind of lead, the leading advocate for team transitory, is building in substantial price inflation into its wage setting practice. That has to be sending a signal to employers across the country. I want to talk, we're going to talk in a second about the Fed and what the Fed should do, but just quickly on what the administration Congress has done. One of the things you were very critical of last year was the um, $1.9 trillion uh, additional American rescue plan that was passed. How much of a role do you think that did play in terms of um, injecting additional demand into the economy at a time when there were these supply constraints. How much of a role do you think that did play in pushing up inflation? You know, it's that plus the $900 billion that came before it in December. That $2.8 trillion, or about 14% of GDP, is about twice as much extra spending in one year as the whole guns and butter episode during the Vietnam War was spread over quite a number of years. So I think it was probably the single most important factor contributing to the inflation uh, that we have. You know, other people prefer to talk about bottlenecks, but bottlenecks are about supply and demand. And when you have more demand, you're more likely to have a bottleneck. And so if we hadn't had more demand, we wouldn't have had so many bottlenecks. So I think it was a very substantial policy error. When I originally warned about its excessive size, I warned about two things, both of which I think have materialized. One is that it would lead to inflation with all the problematic consequences that that has. And two, the combination of the debt involved and the inflation generated would make people very skittish about what I think were the much more fundamental investments that were contained in subsequent legislative proposals. And certainly the macroeconomic environment associated with inflation and excessive demand, if you listen to Senator Manchin in particular, has been important in why it's been difficult to move forward with fundamental public investments. We're going to take a quick break there, but when we come back, more with Larry Summers on inflation and the U.S. economy. Stay with us. WSJ Special Access gives you a front row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across. The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to it. Check out The Quirkier Side of Life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. We're back on the Free Expression podcast from The Wall Street Journal with Jerry Baker, and I'm talking with Larry Summers, former Secretary of the Treasury, former Chief Economic Advisor to President Barack Obama, now professor at Harvard University. Okay, let's talk about what should be done now then that we have where we are with inflation. Let's talk about the Federal Reserve in particular. The last time consumer prices were rising at this rate of 7 and 7 plus percent, uh, the federal funds rate was in 1982, as we said earlier, the federal funds rate was, was over 10%. Uh, we now have a federal funds rate of zero. Now that's going to change. Obviously, we know very quickly um, in the course of the next few months. But, and of course, we also know, I think even you expect that inflation is going to stay as elevated as seven and a half percent for very long. But by any measure, uh, Larry, the, the Fed is miles behind the curve here, right? So what 
should it do? Because accepting also the risk that if it moves as quickly as it might need and might be desirable to do to get ahead of the curve, especially given that monetary policy operates with lags, that could cause tremendous fallout in financial markets, but also more importantly in the real economy. So if Larry Summers were chairman of the Fed right now, what would you be doing? Look, I think the Fed has a very hard job. I've compared the task of making monetary policy to the task of adjusting a faucet uh, for your shower when there's a, an uncertain 20 or 30 second lag between the time you turn the faucet and the time the temperature of the water changes. And in that situation, we've all been in, it, in old hotels, it's very easy to scald yourself or to freeze yourself. And I think that's the unfortunate situation in which the Fed finds itself. Seems to me that the Fed should have ended quantitative easing six months ago, and that given all the uncertainties facing the country, to substitute floating rate bank reserves for longer-term treasury debt was just the wrong thing to be doing. I've advocated that the Fed should end QE tomorrow vis-a-vis some kind of special meeting, less because it makes a big substantive difference whether they end it in early February or in early March, but rather because I think it would send an important symbolic sign. Beyond that, I think the wisest words Jay Powell has spoken in the last 12 months were humble and nimble. And given that we don't know what's going to happen in financial markets and the like, I'm reluctant to play into the game of will it be five raises this year? Will it be seven raises this year? And I think it's very hard to know what's going to happen and whether there's going to be a war on between Ukraine and Russia. And that's got to be relevant to a monetary policy action in March. So I'm not going to make specific prescriptions, but I think I would at the Fed be moving to end QE forthwith. I would be signaling that our models and processes for predicting inflation had been shown to be inadequate and that we were working on repairing them. And I would convey a bias for the sake of credibility towards the view that we were absolutely determined to reduce inflation. I understand you don't you don't want to make particular recommendations about policy changes, but you know I take it from that you assume. I mean the market. So the market is, is roughly expecting anywhere between, as you say, five and seven twenty five point rate hikes this year, possibly with a fifty basis point one to start off with in March. That would still leave the Fed funds rate at the end of the year at or below two percent, which would still, again, by any measure of expectations of inflation, would still be fairly accommodative. But do you think? Again, without being specific about the numbers, do you think that that direction of monetary policy is enough? Or do you think actually there's a chance the Fed may need to be more aggressive than that? My best guess is that it will not be enough. Um, I think that if the economy continues in the kind of 3% growth mode and inflation doesn't fall below 3.5%, I don't see how you can avoid moving real interest rates towards a positive level at 
that would require substantially more Fed funds actions. On the other hand, Jerry, I think one has to be aware that sometimes economies move towards recession not generated by monetary policies because of asset price bubbles bursting, because of excessive accumulation of inventories and other forms of capital, and that if that happens, there is no need for interest rate hikes to pile on. So I think that the most likely thing is that rates are going to need to go significantly higher than is forecast by the market or the Fed. But one does need to be aware of the possibility, uh, especially given all the uncertainties in today's world, of a softening or even recession that is not generated by monetary policy and would necessitate some move towards easing. Can you think, Larry, any examples in history where the Fed, or indeed any central bank, well, let's stick with the Fed, the Fed has been able to rein back inflation, especially inflation that has accelerated so as rapidly as inflation has in the last year to 18 months. The Fed has been able to do that without precipitating a recession. Jerry, I have been very much, as you know, on the pessimistic side. And I think if one looks at the probability of recession, conditional on inflation being above 4% and unemployment being below 4%, the uh, risks of recession over the next couple of years are substantially higher than what is, I suspect, priced into markets. I think if you look at the 1994 period, when the Fed moved to tighten substantially in response to what were then seen as building inflationary pressures, we didn't get the building inflationary pressures, and we got the boom through uh, the uh, uh, 1990s. So I don't think it's quite right to say that it's impossible to engineer a soft landing, but I think that the plane is flying awfully high and uh, awfully fast. The pilots have, to this point, pretty substantially misjudged the situation, even as it was becoming clearer to others. And so I think there's a lot of reasons for jittery nerves, but I think it's a substantial overstatement of the historical record to say it's impossible. What about the role for the administration, for the rest of the federal government? Um, as you said, there was certainly significant contribution to this from the total $2.8 trillion of uh, additional support for the economy a year and a little bit more ago. What can the administration do? There's obviously one particular question that they're considering is, you know, a gas tax holiday. Is that simply window dressing? Is it pointless? Could it work or is it actually even counterproductive? I think a gas tax idea is saved only by its triviality from being one of the worst public policy ideas of the decade. It will have little effect over any reasonable horizon on... Tell us what you really think, Larry. On on gas prices, it will be counterproductive from an environmental point of view. It is the ultimate policy gimmick and the people advocating it should be embarrassed about what it reveals for their fundamental frivolity and fundamental disrespect for the American people. I think there are 
things the administration can and should do. It should make sure that all new spending is paid for from here. It should make sure that it is focused on buying efficiently as well as spending money. Democrats tend to like to do that about buying pharmaceuticals. They tend to be less enthusiastic about buying from foreign suppliers when those foreign suppliers are cheaper. They should be seeking to hire the builders who will build most efficiently, not layering on a broad range of other objectives in carrying out projects. I think letting more workers into the country would probably be constructive in terms of wage pressures at a time of labor shortage. I think that we need to look very hard at our trade policies, or more accurately, our non-trade policies, which too often seem to me of a stop or I'll shoot myself in the foot variety, where we try to get other countries to buy our products, even in situations where they're buying our products might actually raise the inflation rate. I think that's a mistake that we make, especially when our leverage is tariffs, which we don't benefit from and raise prices to consumers. Sounds like you think the gas tax holiday ideas and even uh, less effective way of tackling inflation and having us all wear badges that say whip inflation now. But um, what about Build Back Better? Um, you mentioned Joe Manchin and you just said that any new uh, spending should be paid for. As we know, this has been a moving target for a long time, this this bill, which now seems to be suspended in ter- permanent suspended animation. It's got a current sort of apparent price tag of around $1.718 trillion dollars. You know, seem Democratic members of Congress claim it's paid for, but as Joe Manchin has pointed out, it's paid for by a lot of gimmicks like sunsetting provisions uh, in a very short period of time, which are very unlikely to hold and not to be, re- and, and the provisions are likely to be renewed. Do you think it's just time to just give that a quiet, decent burial? No, Jerry, I don't. Um, I think it may be time for a renewed process that starts from a blank slate rather than the last existing text of uh, the bill. But I think if we had the principles of 10 years of pay-fors for 10 years of policy, not 10 years of pay-fors for three years of policy, I think if we had the principle that on a year-by-year basis, any new spending we're going to engage in is going to be matched by revenue increases, not revenue increases in 2030 for spending in 2023. I think if we look very carefully at the many spending proposals contained in that bill to figure out which are most cost-effective, which go best with the grain of supporting fundamental objectives through the private sector, if we place more emphasis on purchasing efficiently, as well as on purchasing extensively, I think that there's important content there in the Build Back Better legislation. How do we get this inflation? So many people get this, not you, obviously, (laughs) but how did so many people get this uh, inflation story so wrong? And again, you know, you you, you were right. There were one or two other economists like you who were talking about it. But we're not not here talking about stupid people or, you know, ill-educated people. The the staff of the Federal Reserve clearly didn't seem to see this coming. The IMF didn't seem to see it coming. Serious economists in the administration and Wall Street and everywhere else. Again, without sort of undoubtedly ascribing to you a particular 
insightful intelligence. What made so many people unable to see the things that you were seeing and treat the warnings with such a dismissive way? What went wrong? Let me let me say that I don't really understand it. And Jerry, you and I have talked over the years for decades, actually. And I think you'd agree that it's quite rare that on a matter of economic forecasting, I have found myself in a position as divergent as I did last year. So it was mysterious to me what everybody else thought, because my views seemed relatively straightforward to me. I think the factors that are important are complacency after 40 years. Nobody remembered inflation. All kinds of stuff happened. It never started inflation. And so people developed a view that inflation couldn't start. I think that was part one. I think in some quarters, there was a certain amount of motivated reasoning. We really want to have a large stimulus bill. We really are very alarmed by COVID. We want to provide a lot of support in that context. And therefore, in that context, we're going to convince ourselves that it will not be an, an inflationary thing. I think those are two important elements of it. I think a third element in it was an excessive belief in the ability of formal mathematical models to extrapolate out beyond the range over which they were fit. And so people thought they could apply those models in settings where those models have turned out not to be very accurate. I think another thing was just a lot of paying attention, probably excessive attention to markets, and markets were not flashing red alarm about the level of inflation. I think those were all elements that entered into it. Uh, I think what is pretty unfortunate is, and will have been a costly error, is I don't think anybody did an economic calculation or model and decided that $1.9 trillion was the right amount of stimulus. I think that number arose from a whole variety of political considerations, heavily having to do with putting together a coalition that would support the bill. And I don't think it was sufficiently challenged in the broad community. And so I think skepticism and open debate are something that are hugely important. And I don't think we had enough of that. Final question, Larry. Um, thank you very much. I'm going to ask you a political question. You're a Democrat. You consider yourself, I'm sure, a, a progressive Democrat. You've been associated with Democratic causes for a long time. You've served in successive Democratic administrations. The Democratic Party, obviously, right now is looking at the polls um, in a pretty pretty bad way. Um, these can change, of course. We know polls can change. But I think it's fair to say that a lot of people are concerned, a lot of Democrats are concerned about where the party is. And it's not just because of the economic conditions or the kind of fallout from COVID or all of the other factors. There does seem to be some concern about the direction of the Democratic Party. What, what, what's your view? Um, are the party's current problems primarily, dare I use the word, transitory and will likely to go away when things, if and when things improve in the economy? Or, or do you think the party has, um, as some people think, uh, has become 
and, and this president even has become to some extent captive to a very left-wing approach, to a very, very progressive approach on cultural issues, on social issues, some of the economic stuff that we've been talking about. What's your, what's your diagnosis of the state of the Democratic Party right now? So look, first, Jerry, I have always been a relatively moderate Democrat, and I certainly have not appreciated uh, some of the more left-wing slants on either economic or cultural issues uh, that the party has engaged in, which it seems to me have pulled away from a broad American center, which is America at its best. But I think it's important to point out that the depravities of extremism in the Democratic Party, while not entirely absent, are dwarfed by the behavior of a political party that can label January 6th legitimate political discourse and censure those who seek to investigate and condemn it. So I think in both parties, we need to get back a bit towards a broad center that can think about solving problems in ways that go with the grain of the country rather than in ways that seem to be going in very different uh, directions. Are you optimistic that the country will move away from those poles and that we'll overcome this period of apparent extremism? Jerry, I'm not going to predict elections or the next election. And I've never said anything like this before, um, but I do think the future of the American experiment is in doubt if President Trump were to become president again in 2024. And I say that as someone who opposed the election of Ronald Reagan and Bush father and Bush son, but never felt that the broad nature of the American experiment was at stake. Assuming that we do not lurch into American Peronism, which is how I think of President Trump, I think that the right reading of American history is a history of resilience, in which it is precisely our capacity to become alarmed to succumb to Jeremiah's that ultimately plants seeds of renewal and leads us forward to better places. So my expectation would be that we will work our way through this uh, some which way. Uh, the students that I'm privileged to teach at Harvard certainly have a kind of capacity for hard work, capacity for analysis, commitment to doing good in the world that far exceeds anything that my generation of students had. And so it's hard to look at that and not be on balance, optimistic, but I think it's hard to look at one of our great political parties' response to January 6th and not have that optimism be tempered with substantial alarm. 
<laughs> I mean, I guess some people would say that maybe whatever the condition of the students at Harvard, they may not be representative of the nation as a whole. And in fact, they may be benefiting from extraordinary privileges that aren't available to lots of other people. And that may be the reason why lots of other people are so unhappy with the direction of the country. But uh, I think that's fair. And certainly that's something I've devoted a lot of my life as an educator, uh, as an educator too. But I think it is worth highlighting that three quarters of them come from families who are not able to pay the full Harvard tuition and they all get very substantial assistance that they come from every part of the country to take one thing that comes as a surprise to many people nearly 10 percent of them are Christian evangelicals. Is that right? I'm so. I was going to ask you. Do they all? Don't they all think alike? Isn't that part of the problem? But that. That's. I'm, I am surprised by that number. Yeah, I know. And I think in the election between uh, President Obama and Mitt Romney, a third of them voted for Mitt Romney. Now you can say it wasn't fifty-fifty where the country was, but that is, I think, a pretty substantial number. I would not say the same thing, by the way, about the faculty uh, <laughs> in terms of. It's, uh, it's political diversity. But to return to the broader point, Jerry, I, you know, people thought the country was in the thrall of McCarthyism with hugely dangerous consequences, and then it wasn't. There was extraordinary despair after the Vietnam Watergate period. We had a president who gave a major, major address about a crisis in the national spirit. And then we worked our way through it. Every business-type commentary of the kind we're having now in 1990 or 1991 included some version of the joke that the Cold War was over and Japan had won. And so I think it's a mistake to undervalue American resilience. And I guess the moment I will lose my faith in America's future is the point where that faith becomes so universal that it slides into complacency. And we're many things, but I don't think we are a complacent nation. That is a very good note on which to end. Larry Summers, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining me. Good luck and uh, speak to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Free Expression with Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal. Please be sure to tune in every week for more in-depth discussions with leading thinkers in the worlds of economics and politics and business. And please also make sure to listen to Potomac Watch from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. That is now five days a week, Monday to Friday. Make sure you listen to that as well. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you'll tune in next time.